Welcome to Positive Sum, a podcast hosted by Drew Jarmas and James Lesh. In this week's episode, we sit down and chat with Victor Cruz, a strength conditioning coach for the Tampa Bay Rays and co-founder of Damage Sports Performance. In this episode, we discuss Victor's background, the landscape of strength conditioning, some insight into Victor's work with high-performance athletes, and some tips and tricks that you can use to design your own exercise program. To complement the show, James put together comprehensive show notes, which you can receive free of charge by subscribing to our Substack newsletter at positivesumpod.substack.com, positivesumpod.substack.com, or by using the link in the description. We've also created a Positive Sum podcast discord, which you can also find in the description. If you like this episode, feel free to share it with a friend or loved one and give our show a rating on the platform where you stream podcasts. With that housekeeping out of the way, let's get to the show. All right. Positive Sum Podcast, number 16, I believe. 15. 15. Jumping the gun here. Episode number 15, we have on our second guest, Victor Cruz. Um, Victor and I know each other from the Rays. We met this summer and we're actually roommates together as seasonal employees. So I was a seasonal dietitian and he's he was a seasonal strength coach down there with me. And we really hit it off, had a lot of nights where we were talking shop and thought that he'd be a great person to get on the podcast here. He's a wealth of knowledge when it comes to strength and conditioning. Uh, he's only 23 years old, I believe. Right, Victor? Yeah. Cool. So he's got, he's got a bright future ahead of him in this industry. Uh, he's finishing up grad school now and will be returning back to the Rays this summer, uh, which I'm really excited about. So Victor, I'm just going to kind of open it up for you and just say, why strength conditioning? So how did you get into it and why did you pick the field? We can just start there. Yeah, good question. I mean, before we get started, I want to thank you guys for having me on. Um, you know, I've, I'm really early in my career and I've only done a few podcasts here, but I'm, I'm really happy to be on with you guys and, and it's a pleasure. Um, so when we talk about strength conditioning, you know, I think the best way to do is kind of get into my story a little bit. Um, and really the first memories for me in life were carrying a baseball bat and glove and playing in the backyard with my dad. Um, you know, and through that process, you play high school baseball, college baseball, and now I went to Roan University in South Jersey, um, where I really fell in love with, with the weight room. And to be honest with you guys, it might even been before that. I first got in the gym my, my freshman year in high school um, at a facility that, you know, I'm still good friends, and they're my mentors to this day, um, back when I'm from in New Jersey. And, you know, that kind of that kind of snowballed into something greater as I went into college and I played four years of baseball at Rowan. Um, and now, like you said, I'm, I'm finishing up my master's degree at East Strasburg University. Um, so somewhere down that line, you know, the goal was always to be a professional baseball player and, and it just wasn't, you know, wasn't in the cards for me. So as my career went on, I used those summers instead of playing, as most college baseball players do, go and play summer ball. Instead, I started pursuing um, internships, experiences, anything I could do um, in the summertime towards to progress my career while still playing. And, uh, you know, that kind of lended itself to to be able to do some pretty cool things. I, I went down to a gym called Cresty Sports Performance um, in Florida. Um, I first played there and then and then I interned there and I was able to be around you know, some pretty cool people. And I was able to train people from, you know, from grade school all the way up to, you know, in that area, you get some really wealthy, you know, hedge fund people that are 70, 80 years old. So, and all amongst that, I got to see guys like Noah Syndergaard, John Carlos Stanton, Justin Verlander, guys like that. Um, so I got the baseball side of it. I got the general population side of it. It really lended itself to, to where I'm at today, where, you know, last summer, me and you were, you know, living in a three bedroom and kind of living the dream. You know, I was 22 years old. I was a strength conditioning coach for professional baseball. So I wasn't able to play it, but, you know, I was able to coach it the next best thing. So they say those who can't play coach. Um, so I'm, I'm really grateful kind of at 22, uh, I'm 23 now, but at 22, I kind of landed a position where, you know, it's kind of the dream for me. Uh, so that's kind of my story. Nice. And just taking a step back, uh, obviously just with your age being, I think 22 when you got the job with the Rays, 
And then also I might add that uh, Victor was part of a staff that won FCL uh, strength and conditioning staff of the year, which is a huge accomplishment. But being only 22 years old and uh, breaking into baseball, which is typically something that happens a little bit later in life, um, was there any nerves going into it? Just starting the summer as a 22-year-old, you're around a bunch of professional athletes for the first time. Uh, kind of put us in that situation. What was that kind of like for you? Yeah, I, you know, I've been in a few situations. Even when I went down to that gym, you know, at Cressy, you know you're going to be around high-profile athletes and people that may be older than you. And, and to be honest with you, know more than you. Um, so kind of my, my thought process going in was take this first week, don't act like you know anything, don't coach anybody, um, and just go in and try to build as much relationships and really talk shop with as many people as you could. So, so I went in that first week and I didn't tell anybody to do this exercise this way or do this exercise because of that. Really what I did was I went around and really it was about, you know, where are you from? You know, what's your family like? Um, what do you like to eat? Really simple questions like that. And you build relationships, have conversations with these people. And then you notice as the summer goes on, um, you know, they trust you a little bit more. They know you as a person. So then they'll come up to you and ask, hey, what do you think about this exercise? Or or can you read me some kind of program? I'm, I'm working on this on the mound or whatever it is. So everything, man. It's not even, you know, what we do. But in, in life, it's about communication and building relationships. So I noticed that, you know, I was lucky enough when I went down to notice that before I even got there was, Hey, let's communicate. Let's build some relationships before we do anything. And at the end of the day, um, I really wanted to be myself. You know, you don't want to come off as somebody that you're not because at the end of the day, if you're going to be there for a long time, they're going to know who you really are. So, um, I tried to be myself and, and really be a good communicator. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, you know, I just wanted to jump in, uh, quick to ask, you kind of mentioned some of the, some of the athletes that you've gotten a chance to work with um, some of which I'm a pretty big fan of. Uh, but what did, did you learn anything about strength and conditioning that you didn't know from your education from working with those experienced athletes? Like, did they teach you anything that you now use in your own kind of like practice? Good question. Um, it's interesting because I think about this, this quite a bit because, you know, you go through all this schooling. I've done four years undergrad exercise science. Now I'm finishing up two years in the graduate program and you learn a lot of textbooky stuff. You learn, you know, programming principles and maybe some physiological concepts of, of how certain things work. But at the end of the day, um, being in the weight room is, is a different beast in and of itself. And if you want to be a really good strength conditioning coach, you, know, you have to be in the trenches. You have to coach. You can't read a textbook and be a really good coach. You have to be on a weight room floor and, and be a really good coach. So there, there's, Definitely times, especially, uh, you know, if we related back to this summer, um, being with, you know, a lot of Spanish speakers, and this may not necessarily be, you know, the weight room side of things, but being with a lot of Spanish speakers, those guys taught me so much, you know, not just the, the language of Spanish, but perspective um, on the world, right? Like I come from a place, I basically grew up my whole life in the Northeast of the United States. And then you go down to Florida and you see these guys that have a totally different perspective on life. And being able to know their story and where they're from um, really opens your eyes to some things that, you know, if I stayed up north, I wouldn't have seen otherwise. So, you know, I, I like to come out of experiences, hopefully leaving an impact, but also realizing that those people had an impact on me. Um, so, yeah, definitely for sure. Yeah, I definitely agree with that aspect of perspective and especially getting down to the DR and just kind of seeing the academy down there. It uh, definitely puts things in perspective. and. It's pretty interesting, too, because you get the whole backstory of, you know, where these guys are coming from, how they're living, the types of, you know, living conditions that they're growing up with and all of that. So definitely agree on that aspect. It's super interesting. But uh, kind of shifting gears into getting into strength conditioning, um, I would say that although this field's been around for a few decades, you know, it's still something that's up and coming. Not everyone really knows about it. So how did you kind of land that first internship? What does that sort of look like? Obviously, you did exercise science for undergrad, but applying for your first internship, what did that sort of look like? Yeah, like I said, for me, it all started with baseball. You know, I was, I was really trying to develop to become the best baseball player I could be. And the path for me was hopefully to be a professional baseball player one day. So in doing that, I understood that it wasn't just 
go to team practice and go to team lift and call it a day. Now it's it's make sure you show up 30 minutes early, do your mobility routine, then go to practice. Then after team lift, you have to take care of your nutrition. And then how can you sleep right? How can you get off blue light? Right? It's all encompassing so many things to actually get to a certain level. Um, so as I went throughout that, you know, I learned more and more on my own um, about weightlifting. And, and I kind of really took a liking to Eric Cressy and everything he did. Um, he's now the, the director of player, player health and performance for the Yankees. Um, so, you know, I kind of found Eric Cressy online. I read a lot of his stuff. I bought a few of his programs and I knew when I wanted to get a strength conditioning, I had to, I had to go to his spot and, and see what he was really all about, um, in person. And, you know, I was lucky to, to land that. I mean, you apply and, um, I actually had a little bit of a connection there, um, from a former graduate from Rowan university. So I got lucky and, you know, connections are big connections are big. I mean, I'm sure we'll have a conversation about that, but networking is huge and all that stuff. And, you know, so it really all stemmed from me trying to develop to the best of my ability. And to me, I knew that was the weight room and I kind of landed in the direction of Eric Cressy and I, I, I'm just grateful, man. I just got kind of lucky and landed that position. And that was really the, the kickstart for me. Yeah, definitely. And with strength conditioning, just knowing the field after navigating it, I mean, you need to do so many different internships in order to land your first gig. And much of them are typically unpaid. Uh, for those that don't know, in strength conditioning, it's not uncommon for people to do three or four internships, kind of just climbing the ladder summer after summer or during winters between semesters in order to just land their first paid gig. So it's a, uh, it's a field where you definitely need to put the work in <laughs> before you get paid, uh, unfortunately. But yeah, you definitely get some great experiences working with some high-end athletes. Yeah, it could, it could be a windy road. But for people that are interested, I mean, you really have to find a spot that the way, the way I kind of look at it now is, is do your research, you know, where do you want to end up? What's a dream job? Or, you know, if you want to go into pro baseball, look at a pro baseball player. And then, you know, LinkedIn is a great resource these days. Look at his track record. Where did he come from? What did he do? Um, and kind of look at paths and, and how could your path match up with that? You know, you don't want to just go to like, okay, here's my local gym. Let me go to an internship there. And then that's going to get me to where I want to be. That's not necessarily how it works. It's like, you have to find, uh, people that are in the shoes that you want to be in one day um, and kind of follow certain paths. So that's, that kind of comes to the conversation of like having mentors um, and knowing how to be guided. Uh, I think strength conditioning is a good field for that. Yeah. And um, kind of while we're on that topic of just career trajectories, um, do you have any sort of personal end goals at this point? You know, any 10 or 15 year goals that you want to reach, whether it's you know, director of this or major league strength coach, anything like that at this point? Um, I've actually been thinking about this, you know, because my schooling is, is finishing up here in master, in, with my master's degree. And when I kind of think about a five-year plan, something that I take pride in is having a growth mindset. And I know it's kind of a buzzword, um, but it is what it is. That's, that's who I am. That's what I do. I want to get better every day. Um, so with that said, for me, I really want to suck everything out of the educational system before I um, move on, whether that be reading more books or taking more courses. So for me, I, I, th I do think a doctorate is, is something I want to do in the future. Um, so, you know, go back with the raise and, and see how my time works out there. And I think one day I do want to pursue a doctorate. And then, you know, that's probably like a five year or so plan, five, 10 year plan. And after that, you know, we'll kind of see where it takes me. I like the idea of, of opening up a gym, which I actually did this winter with my buddy, which was a cool experience. Um, so I like the idea of opening up a gym and then, you know, professional baseball is where it's at, man. For me, I, I just love professional baseball. Um, that was always my goal. And now seeing it, you know, right there on the field with those guys, is something I really love. So maybe, you know, at the end of the day, after I get my doctorate and go to a, you know, go to a college, maybe come back and, you know, I don't want to be just average. Um, so obviously, you know, being the director of performance for an organization would be, would be like a dream to me. And, you can talk all you want about dream jobs and where you want to end up and me wanting to get a doctorate, but what it comes down to is action. You know, you have to, you have to put it in every day. So I can talk about all I want, but can I really take the steps to do it? Yeah. Awesome. Um, I, I have a question just kind of as a baseball outsider at this point, I played baseball all throughout high school, but at this point I'm a, I'm a baseball outsider, but still, still an avid fan, but I'm curious where, where is strength and conditioning now 
in baseball and where is it going? I know that's kind of a broad question, so I, I can narrow it down. Like um, I was a big fan when I was in high school of, if you're familiar with like Brent Porciao, I think he did the uh, top velocity. That was his. Oh, top velocity. Yep. Yeah. I was, I was like so fascinated by that when I was in high school because we never learned at our winter workouts or anything like that, anything about Olympic lifting or, you know, uh, hip to shoulder separation and having like mobility and really explosive power. It was all about endurance, running poles, uh, balancing on the mound, whereas like Brent Porcia has the exact opposite. It's, he doesn't do any, he doesn't advocate, at least I don't think, um, for, much endurance training. It's all explosive work. So to me, that was really interesting because it was a look into the future of where baseball is going. And now you see that everywhere. I mean, there's so many, um, I think Velo U is like another one. Mm-hmm. Um, you see so many of these pitching camps that, that preach this kind of explosive strength uh, kind of program. So I'm just curious, uh, where is the rest of baseball headed is that the norm now with with pitching a lot of these camps it seems like it is i'm not sure what it's like for position players but i guess to narrow it down a little bit is what is what is being trained for now among baseball's top athletes like what 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 are what is trying to be selected for in training to to produce the baseball players that are going to be the best today but then also like the best baseball players of tomorrow yeah, that's actually a really good question. And before I dive into it, now that you mentioned um, top velocity, I know exactly who you're talking about. So I, I'm a little bit familiar with that guy. But, yeah, the stuff he comes out with, he was one of the pioneers kind of, like yeah. getting guys and really building velocity and kind of showcasing it in a case study way. Mm-hmm. So um, Brent Horsiao is his name. Yep, you're right. So that was cool. Um, but you worded the question, like, perfectly. Like, what what do you do to actually get athletes to become the best versions of themselves, right? That's That's what it is. We ask ourselves – as coaches, the same question. And I think um, as we, as we're building in this field and like you guys know, I'm kind of new to it myself, but I think where we've, where we're kind of coming to and is, is an individualized approach. Um, so you don't just put a blanket program to um, your position players or your pitchers or everybody in the organization. That's not really how it works anymore. Um, we have a whole support staff of athletic trainers, uh, movement professionals, strength conditioning guys that are able to kind of individually profile athletes from a movement perspective, from a performance perspective. And we can get into the, some of the assessment batteries of, of how different coaches or, or organizations will do that. But basically we'll have measures to, you know, like key performance indicators. Like does this matches up. We know this, this movement or this exercise matches up to baseball performance. Now, how good are you at this movement? So that kind of give us a picture of like, now how do we progress that to then see some more performance on the field? But in general, to answer it is there's an individualized approach. Everybody has a different program. Everybody has a little bit different specifications on what they're working on off the field. Um, and everybody moves different, right? Everybody is their own athlete. Um, so to me, that makes a lot of sense in, in you know, the concept of doing that. And then really good strength and conditioning professionals are able to individually assess an athlete and know what direction to go in based on their assessment battery. Um, and then you also mentioned kind of where is it heading? I think that's where it is right now. A lot of individualized approaches. Um, I think where it is heading, I mean, you watch a major league baseball game, how much analytics do you see on the screen? It's like all these statistics out of nowhere, right? The stat cast, the exveal, all this stuff. And I think that just goes to show like there is something up and coming. Um, and by that, I mean, with all this analytics, like that's sports science, that's what that is, right? So when you look at all these organizations, they have especially the Rays, me and Drew, Drew and I know this, like we have a huge sports science department. Um, so that's, that's, I think, as we go further and f- further, we actually have, we'll have data to, to collect and then analyze to make more decisions. So it's not only like a coach's eye, like maybe where it is now, even though, you know, there, there is some object, objective stuff in how we assess, but the more and more, the farther we go, James, I think the more objective it's going to get with all the data we're collecting. Um, so individualization and more objectivity in, in sports science and, and technology, I think, is how I'd answer that question. Yeah, no, I think that that totally makes sense. Just, maybe just a, a quick follow up. I, I don't know if you, you have the answer to this or if you can say, but like, is this something kind of all teams are are on now or are some teams slower to, to kind of catch up to this individualized training, like you said, than others? Or is this pretty much standard across baseball now? 
Yeah, I think I think the individualized approach is becoming more and more common. Um, what I can say is like, so with the Rays, obviously we're from the inside, so we know we do have an individualized approach in what we do. Um, and then I, I do know some other organizations, and for example, the Oakland A's, a smaller budget team, they don't necessarily they don't have much of a sports science department. So a lot of what they do on the strength conditioning side um, is making databases and the things that we have our sports science do, it's all on them. So obviously, you know, no matter how good they do, we have a team of people for that and they have to juggle all these tasks. So um, yeah, to answer that question, not everybody's at the same point, but that's not to say somebody's better or somebody's worse. It's just different ways of getting to a world series. Got it. Yeah. Yeah, the uh, sports science aspect is huge. That field is white hot lately and tons of people going into it, uh, tons of off-season job postings for it as well. Um, so definitely, definitely growing. But um, I guess I'll ask this question in the example of Cressy because I just want to be sensitive of some raised secrets. But what would like a assessment battery kind of look like for an athlete? Um, let's say it's a professional baseball player. They just come into, uh, Cressy or let's say your, um, your facility that you're running now, what are you going to kind of run them through? What kind of assessments and what are you really looking at? Yeah. Yeah. Good question. So I'll kind of, I'll kind of, uh, answer that question in terms of my eyes and the facility that I'm running. So basically I'm the director of strength conditioning at a, at a local baseball facility here in East Stroudsburg. And uh, we've been doing it for, I'll say, six or seven weeks now. And already we're seeing some pretty cool results. It's just me and my buddy that are that are running it. But the assessment battery essentially looks like this. So, like I said, I want to look at them from a movement perspective, and I want to look at them from a performance perspective. So movement for me is like on table, range of motion, um, stuff that's kind of passive range of motion. And then performance test is more uh, med ball throws and jumps. So if we get into the specifics, um, and this is all blended from – my perspective from the Rays and my perspective from Cressy. So everybody's different in how they do this. But for me, this is a simple approach that... Victor, not to cut you off, but could you just real quick define uh, passive versus active range of motion for people that might not know? Yeah, so if I said... um, Yeah, so the video... We don't know if we're posting the video up, but basically I'll explain it as I talk. Um, So passive range of motion would say somebody's on the table and I just lay their shoulder back into external rotation. I'm not... Um, applying much pressure or they're not activating any musculature and that's passive so they, there's not any tension built there it's just where your shoulder lies versus um, active range of motion would be like okay let's lay your shoulder up on the table and i want you to externally rotate or move into a range of motion as much as you can with your musculature um, that would be active so you could maybe to put it in an easier way maybe if you're laying flat on a bench or on a table and we just do a leg raise, like a hamstring leg raise. Um, you could do that. That's an easy way to look at active versus passive. So I could bring your leg up for you, which would be passive, or you could bring your leg up by yourself, which would be active. So it's basically um, dependent on, you know, if the athlete is doing the movement or if I'm working them through it, that's passive versus active. How was that? I, I thought Nailed it was it. great. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, really good. <laughs> Sorry to cut you off. Head, head back into what you're saying. Um, yeah, so my assessment battery, um, yeah, damage performance, that's what the facility is called. So, um, the way we look at it is we get guys in on week one and we do kind of like an assessment week and we'll get them on the table. And for me, a simple approach is, is the following it's shoulder range of motion. So external, internal, um, I take a look at their rib cage. It's something called an infrasternal angle, which is a little sciencey, but it kind of gives me a picture of some things. Um, then I'll look at their hip, shoulder, internal, external rotation. Um, I'll look at ankle mobility. Um, and then I'll look at a few dynamic movements such as a push-up, um, a toe touch, and an overhead squat. So if you look at some of the other movement, uh, you know, kind of the table assessments that are out there, that's a really simple one. And it kind of gives me, you know, I realize it gives me some some ideas or some pictures and things I could work on moving forward. So from a movement perspective, really general, I could do that for a general population client that's 50 years old and works at a desk. Or I can do that for um, a professional baseball player. And both of those clients would... Um, kind of get assessed and give me an idea of what to do. So that's a that's the movement side of things. And then from a performance standpoint for baseball guys, what we do, um, I actually did my graduate thesis um, on 
you know, some sports performance variables and how they relate to hitting velocity or hitting performance specifically. So we kind of ran with that here at Damage, and, and we looked at um, a med ball rotational throw. Uh, we looked at um, a side-to-side jump on one leg, and we also looked at a broad jump. Um, so for us, what we're doing there, I don't want to dive too, too into the specifics, but what we're doing there is, is we're looking at um, lower body power with the broad jump. Um, that's kind of horizontals. Um, forward and back and then we're looking at side to side with the one leg jump which baseball is mainly played side to side it's not up and down very often and then we're also looking at rotational with the med ball throw so we're looking at rotational movements we're looking at um kind of just general lower body power and then we're looking at side to side so for us that's really covering all three movement patterns um that you'd see on the baseball field and we'd see any deficits or strengths or weaknesses within that so that would be our performance test um, and then our movement test would be just on the table stuff. So that gives us a pretty good picture of you know, how we program and, and how we work with guys. Yeah, definitely not um, like the way that James was talking about where, you know, he's going to winter workouts and running poles and things like that. Although some of that stuff is sort of coming back into strength and conditioning, I would say, and like the importance of the cardiovascular system in pitching. Um, I think some recent research, I was at the, uh, NSCA conference this past weekend and they were talking about the athletes reaching up to 91% of heart rate max while pitching, which, um, anybody that knows kind of heart rate stuff, that's pretty substantial. And then even the average was around 85%. So the aerobic system is definitely still important. However, it's not a, it's not the only consideration that's being made anymore, right? That's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. I was I had a buddy uh I had a buddy who pitched here at East Stradsburg and he came in for his past two bullpens kind of getting ready for preseason. He had a whoop on. And you don't see that many whoops like just around. You saw him a lot with the Rays because it's professional sports, but he had he got a whoop for Christmas and we were looking at some of his heart rate values during his it was a simulated two-inning bullpen. He got up to like 170 something beats per minute so that falls probably right in line with 85 90 percent of of heart rate max for him and it was like whoa i didn't expect that and then where my brain went from there was like how can i emulate that in the weight room like how can i get your heart rate up to that level so then you're training where you'd be at in the game and it's hard to really train anaerobic power while you're you're at 170, 180 beats per minute. So it's an interesting concept that people have went like from running poles, completely aerobic system to like, let's build anaerobic power. Let's do a lot of broad jumps and front squats with a lot of rest or whatever it is. And then now it's all coming first full circle. It's like you have to reflect and analyze like, why do these things work? Why are we doing certain things? So that's an interesting point that you made. Yeah, it's definitely something where I think that the pendulum is shifting a little bit uh, more towards center again, where, Hey, it's not that we don't do any aerobic stuff. It's just that we program it in, I guess, more intelligent ways. And just to nerd out on it for one more second before my next question is, um, another aspect that you need to consider too, is that, um, exercise demands aren't the only reason that the heart rate increases, obviously. Right. So there are different, um, effects if the athlete is just throwing like a flat ground and there's no pressure versus if they're in a game and there's a lot of psychological stress. So uh, that is another aspect of it too to consider is, yeah, maybe it's training it, but also it's managing that psychological stress so that we can lower the heart rate as well. Um, Yeah. I I was going to say just based off that, I would be so interested to see like whoop data or some other heart rate data throughout an entire game would be really interesting. And maybe even I don't know, maybe this is an experiment you can run, but just like see it between starters and relievers. Like, is it a fatigue thing? Does it matter? Like if Aaron Judge is at bat versus some utility guy and you're up nine, nothing, like how does that change? Uh, That would be super, super interesting or like versus a closer coming in like a high leverage situation. Um, That would be really, really interesting. Yeah, I'd, I'd Because heart rate is a good measure of like stress, right? So I'd venture to say like a starter, maybe their whoop or heart rate is really high the first inning or the first few batters, and then they level out three through five, right? They kind of level out at even heart rate versus the guy that comes in in the ninth, the closer, his his heart rate is jumped up from the bullpen all the way through the finish of the game. Um, And then you also take in consideration, like you said, Drew, like not necessarily 
in the baseball field, but outside of life effects. Like if you had an argument with your wife last night and then you come in and you're all you're thinking about is your wife and you have to go and bat three today against the Mets, like your heart rate could be significantly higher because you have overall life stresses that are playing into your performance and, and the way you feel. Yeah, definitely. And then, um, James, who's the guy, the closer for the Mets that has the... Oh, Edwin <laughs> the, Diaz. Edwin Diaz. Yeah. You could be Edwin Diaz running into, that, uh, <laughs> into the game with that song on where it's just how about, dude, how about that one dude that uh, used to shotgun a Red Bull before he came in from the bullpen? Oh, I know oh what you're gosh. talking about. I can't yeah. think of it now. Imagine that dude's whooped at him. It was yeah. <laughs> like the machine. Sports scientists having an aneurysm looking yeah. at that. But, all right. Uh, yeah, just shifting gears now. Uh, obviously... You know, you conduct this assessment, right? And then um, what happens next from there? Let's say a kid's on winter break or let's not say a kid. Let's say a college baseball player is on winter break, right? Uh, he has all the time in the world. He doesn't have a job. He's just uh, able to nail every aspect of his training. Um, and this is a pretty standard person. Maybe needs to put on some some strength and a little bit of, of weight. What are you doing from there in terms of, you know, days per week with that program? Um, are you doing a full body workout or is it kind of split training? And then um, I'll just keep it there for now. Then we can get into some more specifics. Yeah, we can kind of talk about the college crew that I have coming, coming in on a weekly basis. So we've been going for, and I train with these guys, so it's kind of a cool training slash coaching experience. Um, but we've been going for about five, six weeks now. Uh, maybe more, but basically how it looks is is we show up in the morning and man, we we may train longer than we have to, but we have a lot of fun while we do it. You know, it's kind of just our lifestyle. We have fun with it. Um, so we'll get there in the morning and we'll go through our prep work and everybody's a little different. I don't um, necessarily write out a program uh, in terms of mobility for these guys. Um, you know, they ha- they kind of have their routines to a certain degree, and then I kind of have conversations about them with which uh, which hip mobility exercises would be a good start for them, which T-spine stuff they should do. Um, <clears throat> and that's all based on their assessment, but that's really conversational based. So we'll do a little pre-work, um, you know, however long it is for those guys. It could be anywhere from 15 to 30 minutes. It's like their warm-up. Um, and then as we go throughout the day, we'll go from warm-up to plyo ball, arm care routine into our throwing um, for the day. And then we'll also do our defensive work depending on the day. So that could be infield for our catchers. We have uh, some blocking stuff, some receiving stuff we'll do. And then after that, we'll get into our hitting. So hitting has been pretty cool at damage. We have a, a specific routine. My buddy that I opened it with has, was, has a really good um, offensive career and he's a good mind. He's a really good baseball mind in terms of development. So we have a really cool hitting routine that we've worked for that, you know, that has shown some pretty cool results in terms of bat speed and exit velocity. Um, so warm up, to plyo and throw, to hit, um, and then after all that's done, that could take, uh, it depends on the day, but sometimes that takes way longer than it should. Sometimes it's four hours later, and we just finished all that stuff, and then we'll hit our lift. Our lift is our last thing, and the way the way I think about this is, you know, we're baseball players, not weightlifters, so what's most important to us is, is baseball development, so we'll take care of all our baseball stuff, and then we'll do our weightlifting after. So basically, whatever we have left in the tank, let's, let's put that into our lift, and then we'll call it a day, so... Um, we get there around 10, 10.30, and, man, we get out of there 2, 3 o'clock. Um, but we've had a lot of fun this winter, and that's kind of what a day in the life looks. Awesome. Yeah. Um, Drew, do you, have, do you have any follow-up to that? I have a question coming after that, but, Drew, if you just want to follow up quick. Yeah, sure. Um, I guess, like, how many days per week are you doing that with, mm-hmm. a, with a lift? Yeah, I, uh, I forgot to cover that. So basically how what looks is, is we do five lifts a week. Um, so for us, we have a, <clears throat> our split looks like lower body on Monday, upper body on Tuesday. We have a recovery base day or aerobic base day, um, on Wednesday. And then we go back to lower body and upper body. So it's five days a week, typically Monday through Friday, but stay if one point throughout the week when we just did three, four hours of baseball, we don't want to lift that day. That's fine. Let's push that lift to Saturday. Um, so it'll really depend on the week, but <clears throat> we have five training sessions in terms of the weight room. And outside of that, we're kind of picking and choosing, okay, today's a long toss day. Today's an off day for throwing. Today we'll do infield. Tomorrow we won't do infield, whatever it is. So it's really, it's a fluid thing. And you could say it's kind of intuitive in how those guys feel or I feel. Um, but we are getting the correct amount of work in or, or really covering our bases in terms of development throughout the week. Got it. Yeah. Um, yeah, my, my question, since we're talking about training and, and you kind of 
said a buzzword in, in baseball over the past few years, which is exit velocity. Um, I'd be curious, do you have any, for athletes that come into damage, do you have any frameworks that you distill down for them quickly so they can get started with like, all right, I want to do, you know, I, I want to increase my exit velocity, you know, by 10 miles an hour, say, um, or I want to increase my fastball velocity by five miles an hour over the next six weeks. Um, do you have any like go-to frameworks for those sorts of uh, really like high leverage and common kind of baseball problems that that baseball players face like common things they want to do yeah definitely um that's a good question and and i tend i'll lend this back to you know how how i did my graduate research project um you know i really dove into the research research on some of this stuff and what we do for our hitters and this is a combination of me and my buddy that i run it with but some of the research um and i saw you guys like i saw I, i listened to one of your previous podcasts and you guys talk about like okay, like you could talk about the research, but do you actually know where that's coming from? And in this case I do, because Drew saw it. Like I was studying this stuff, like all summer, like trying to understand. Late night with his, with his little (laughs) lamp in the living room. Oh yeah. (laughs) Kind of answer your question, James. This is where this research comes from is a guy named David Sismansky. He's a, he's a professor and head of performance for the baseball team at Louisiana Tech. Um, and also another guy, Dr. Coop Duran, he was a former baseball coach at Hawaii, and they did some pretty cool research on hitting and pitching. And we're talking about velocity and also exit velocity. So one of the biggest things that's been proven to work in terms of increasing exit velocity and bat speed is overweight and underweight um, bat training. So, you know, Driveline has come out with some pretty cool products. Um, they're axe bats, and basically they're plus 20% of your average bat weight. And then you have minus 20% of your average bat weight. So as you work through your hitting program, um, you will basically cycle through this. And the way we do it at damage, there's some different ways on how to do it. Basically, we'll work, we'll work our way from T to front toss to overhand to machine, whatever it might be for the day. We'll take three swings with a plus 20%. And we have two of them. We have a barrel load and we have a handle load. So we'll take three swings with um, plus 20% and then another three swings with the other plus 20%. And then we'll go to our under load. So the way that works is it's, kind of like a, you know, what they call it is overload underload or, or bracketing technique per NSCA standards. Um, and it's a really good way of developing, you know, speed. So the, the underload bat is developing like that neurological stimulus where boom, I'm firing really fast. And the overload stuff is kind of like the strength stimulus, if you will, that's just heavier. So if you look at the research, they did some studies and, you know, swinging with the intent to swing hard and fast along with that technique have shown really good results over 12 weeks. Um, some of the best you'll see in the research. So that was one of our frameworks um, in terms of specifically hitting. And then um, we kind of take a holistic approach to it. Like that's specific to hitting, but also we know um, we want guys to throw a lot of med balls um, because that's like a general way of being really good at rotating, which is what hitting is. And then also having a really good um, training program, which hopefully I'm good enough to take care of that. Right. Um, So we kind of have three aspects there. Um, and we have some more things that we might dive into, but obviously you have to talk about mechanics and all this stuff. But for the purpose of this conversation, you know, we have the overload, underload. Um, we have a really good weight training program and we throw a lot of mid balls to become good at rotating. So when we take care of all those three, we feel pretty confident that guys will get more bat speed and increase exit velocity. Yeah. And this, um, the overload, underload training that you're kind of speaking to, um, if that doesn't make sense in terms of baseball specific um, everyone's kind of heard of like hill sprints, whether you're running up a slight grade of incline in order to build a little bit more strength, or even if you think, um, you know, running down a hill, if you think about running down a hill, you're going to be able to go a little bit faster and that's going to train that nervous system so that you can increase your force output, um, and all of that. So that's another way to kind of think about it. And, you know, a lot of that research has been like Soviet research back in the the seventies and uh, discus and shot put and all that stuff. If anyone wants to nerd out on that a little bit more, just to but, oh, sorry, yeah. go ahead. No, go I was going to say just to linger on here real quick because I'm curious: does that type of training is that now translating to kind of on the field practices? So my example would be. Are guys now getting into the uh, the on deck circle and taking three swings of a bat that is twenty percent heavier, like on maybe on average, and then 
uh, three swings with a bat that's 20% lighter instead of just, you know, the old slide the donut on the bat and just take a bunch of, you know, like golf hacks up there just to kind of loosen your arms. Like, is that translating now to like on the field in game practice? Victor's foaming at the mouth because a study's been done on this. James, you're good, man. I mean, that shows you're asking the right questions, right? Because they have specific studies on this stuff. So this is the same group of guys, Tismanski and Kupdurin. Um, they looked at because you see when you watch a major league game, yeah, guys will put the donut on, they'll put weight on, and then they'll swing in. Like you look at the screen, like does, I get that makes sense, right? They're swinging something heavier, and then they go to the plate, and then their bat will feel fast, right? So they did they did a research study on this, and the donut has actually shown to increase um, the muscular velocity or angular velocity. I forget the exact term they use to, uh, I hope I used the right word there. I meant to say decreased. So decreased when they went, so from when they went to donut or weighted uh, in the on-deck circle and then they went to the box, um, their swing speed was decreased. Um, so you look at all the common stuff they do, it's like, wait a second, we just did the research on it now, it doesn't make sense. So if you were to do that, <clears throat> you're right, James, you would, um, if you really were looking to potentiate and get the most out of your on-deck circle from a physiological standpoint, you would do the plus 20% weighted bat, and then you'd go um, into the box. Now, what the problem is, is with the donut and all the weighted stuff they do, it's above 20%, um, so it's not getting the same, I don't know if it'd be neurological or muscular, but it's not getting the same effect on swing speed um, that you see in the research. So, yeah, that's a really good question, and basically that stuff is eyewash. Oh, yeah. Great. This is going to yeah. make me only more mad when I watch. Uh, I'm a huge Mets fan, like a massive, massive Mets fan. So, yeah, this is just going to make me more mad when I watch the games. Yeah, you're going to yeah. watch somebody in the on-deck circle swinging yep. a donut, and then he won't get a hit, and you'll be like, oh, this idiot doesn't know <laughs> exactly. what's going on. <laughs> yeah. If only he saw Szymanski's research. Yeah. But um, just getting back into some of the strength conditioning stuff, um, you know, obviously you came from – Cressy uh, prior to working at the Rays and uh, Cressy has sort of a different way of viewing uh, sports performance and strength conditioning, or at least he did maybe five or 10 years ago. Um, Obviously he sort of values the um, availability over ability, right? Uh, Can you sort of speak to that and how that influences your own programming? Yeah. It's something that that I, like ideology I've battled with for a long time because Cressy was the first place that I really it really formed my philosophy um, and how I do things and you know you I like to reflect and analyze on on experiences and things I've done so you know kind of reflecting on on my time there is what Cressy is known for is training big leaguers like yeah a lot of minor leaguers and college guys and a lot of that stuff but man they have I think. And this isn't, I don't know this for sure, but they, I think they train 40, 50 plus big leaguers every offseason, um, which is the most I've ever heard of for any uh, private training facility. And I think a lot of people would say Cressy trains the most big leaguers in the offseason. So with that said, your philosophy has to be in line with that population. And that population is keep them on the field. It's not to, okay, we're looking for an extra five miles an hour. Uh, no, man, you're there. Let's just keep you healthy and keep going with that. Right. So obviously they have certain philosophies, um, you know, to increase power outputs or really work on mechanics and game velocity and things like that. But their main focus, in my opinion, is to keep guys available. And it's about longevity. Right. Uh, a five year career in the MLB where you throw 100 is cool. But you know, it's cooler playing for 15 years and throwing 95. And then your kids and your grandkids are set up for life. Um, so looking back, we've had conversations over the summer. Drew. Yeah, their, their philosophy is longevity. And. I don't know, an example, like I can give you an example of kind of why that is, or an example in my head of how they train for longevity. They, they do a lot of postural breathing there. Um, so postural breathing, basically what it is, you know, there's a certain institute, it's called the Postural, postural Respiration Institute, if anybody wants to dive into it. But basically what it is, is you set your anatomy or your structure in certain positions. Uh, it could be on the ground, it could be standing, whatever it might be. And, and basically you take really good diaphragmatic um, or thoracic expansion breath. So like if you think about your thorax or torso as like a wholesome unit, right? You want to expand it anteriorly, posteriorly, and to the side. So like if it's like a balloon inside your body, you want to blow up the whole thing, your whole thorax, right? So it really links your breathing um, with the structure of your body. And ideally you're removing some of those asymmetries 
Um, and then you take that once you're now balanced and you go and you do exercises um, that fall in line with the breathing that you did. So it's a really interesting concept. Um, and you see a lot of weird breathing drills in there. Um, but man, that's, I think, I think that's some of their secret sauce. They're really good at that concept, doing breathing and then loading certain patterns that fall in line with the breathing they did. And then you get, you know, 15, 20 degrees extra range of motion. And that provides you a buffer throughout the course of the season. Um, I don't want to dive too deep, but last thing I'll say on this is like, for example, um, something that's really common. And I think, yeah, I'm going to just say the research says, because I heard this, um, I don't know the exact study, but so basically as you go throughout the course of a season, you get increased hip internal rotation um, for pitchers on their drive leg. So what they try to do at Cressy and what I try to do to a certain degree is um, open up that back leg hip internal rotation. So then throughout the course of the season, they have a buffer um, that allows that, you know, that hip mobility to be there because of, if we look at the research, it also says when you lose hip internal rotation, it also puts more stress on the upper extremity, specifically your elbow. Um, so I want to say that research is done by Mike Reynolds because I knew coming into this podcast, I don't, I didn't want to say, oh, the research says this. So I think that's done by Mike Reynolds. He's with the Boston Red Sox. He's the physical therapist. I'm not sure, but that's kind of how the longevity aspect plays. Okay. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. And yeah, the PRI stuff is certainly interesting for anyone that wants to check it out. Um, the one question that I had for you is if you're thinking about this trade-off, I guess, between longevity and performance when it comes to exercise selection, um, are there any exercises that you wouldn't select or you'd be more likely to select when you have this kind of dichotomy in mind? Uh, or what are the things that you're sort of weighing when you're saying, all right, I'm picking this because we're going for longevity here versus performance? Yeah. Well, you have to, <clears throat> all starts with the athlete, right? If I have a, if I have a, a D2, a D2 college baseball player that needs an extra five, 10 miles per hour in his fastball, you know, we could do some more aggressive things that are kind of pushing the envelope because it's what he needs to be a professional baseball player. Um, versus if you have a big leaguer, you know, you do that postural breathing into, you know, simple exercises like split squats, um, box jumps versus if you're really trying to push the envelope with a younger, with a younger guy, but that's ready for it. Um, you get into Olympic lifting if you want, you know, Olympic lifting, although it catches a bad rap and honestly, I don't do a bunch of it. Um, it's really good at creating athletes, you know, it, it's coordination, um, with a lot of power output, which is what sports is, right? It's being really powerful while also coordinating and sequencing your body. Um, so just an example would be, you know, with a guy that's trying to push the envelope and looking for performance, do some Olympic lifting. Um, and then for a guy, you know, that's already there or is already in the show, you stay simple with the exercises and you just move them really fast or mess with the sets and reps or do some post-activation potentiation or do some French contrast where you're still under safe conditions. Um, but still getting a really good effect. I see. So it's fair to say that you're weighing sort of the risk reward of exercises based upon the complexity of them and sort of how ready they are for them, right? Like a big leaguer that has good movement, but having them do a super simple split squat is pretty low risk versus um, an athlete that's ready to do Olympic lifting you know, it might have the requisite mobility for it, but not necessarily the coordination and complete ability yet. Uh, that would be a little bit higher risk than the um, professional example. Perfectly said. Yep. Okay, cool. Yeah, that makes sense. Is there data to show the, I guess, like the higher performing baseball players are, the more they get injured? So like uh, the first guy who comes to mind for me, as a Mets fan with this is, is obviously Jacob deGrom who as he's gotten older has somehow managed to just throw harder and harder and harder to the point he's throwing, you know, one Oh two in games. Um, but he's, he's obviously been quite uh, injury prone over the last couple of years. Is that, is that kind of a, a, a rule as, as guys get more higher and higher levels of performance is the in, risk for injury higher or is it kind of just case dependent? Man, I, you know, I can't, I don't have data or anything to back this up, but I'm kind of the mindset where you're at. Like these guys that throw over a hundred and these like super supreme athletes, 
they move so fast and they move so explosively and they do all these things that are out of the ordinary. Um, sooner or later, uh, injury is going to happen because the human body is not necessarily meant to move that way, right? This is the fastest motion the human body could do, like shoulder external rotation to internal rotation. And it's just an example of like, these guys are just supreme athletes and they don't move. They don't move the right way, but they move their way. And their mm-hmm. way is what makes them really good. So yeah. like people that like Jacob deGrom, Chris Sales, another really good example, has never been healthy. It's really hard for him to be healthy for a long time, but he has the funkiest left-hand delivery throwing upper 90s, 100. Um, really, really hard to hit, but really, really hard to stay healthy. Um, so usually what makes, guy, what makes guys unique is what makes them good. Um, so that's what I'll leave that with. But that, and that's yeah. another really good point, James. Yeah, it, it makes me think too of of early career Derek Rose, where I, I learned this uh, a little while ago, but I think basically those like non-contact ACL injuries happen because the quad uh, can con- contracts faster than uh, like kind of the knee can keep up with. I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on what I'm talking about here, but that was what I understood it to be. But it makes sense because it's like, yeah, Derek Rose has uh, way more fast twitch muscle fibers and, and stronger fast twitch fibers in his quad than most people do. But he still has the same ACL ligament that that we all do. Like these guys don't have super physiologic joints for the most part, like the muscle for sure. But um, the kind of stuff, the infrastructure is more or less the same amongst people. Yeah, that was really well said, James. Um yeah, like I think you would think that, oh, yeah, because you can have a 42 inch vertical or you can throw 100 miles per hour, that the uh, musculature or the ligaments or structure, as you put it, would um, increase accordingly with that. But a lot of these ligaments have absolute um, endpoints where you're getting in trouble. So although you're increasing the velocity, that endpoint is still going to be able to take up the same amount of stress. And, um, you know, Victor could speak to it a little bit more, but you can do some things to protect those ligaments a little bit more. Um, maybe it's depth jumps for the knee or, you know, uh, strengthen, strengthening the musculature around the forearm to protect the, the UCL. But at the end of the day, you still have absolute limits uh, at these joints and at these ligaments. Yeah, it's a, it's a hard concept. I mean, Something something that they actually talked about at Cressy a lot was like we we know what was it? It was we know we're not doing anything wrong, but we don't know if we're doing everything right. So like we know we're not hurting the athletes, we know we're not putting them at risk, but we hope our ideas and our exercises are leading them in the right direction. Um, so if we take this back to like. I actually work with the women's basketball team here at ESU. So I have some ideas about how I train basketball players and you're on point with it, James. I mean, you can only, you can only move as fast and powerfully as you can decelerate or control your body. So if you're in a super explosive athlete, but you don't have good landing positions and you can't decelerate, well, it's only a matter of time until you injure yourself. Um, But I think in terms of this stuff, like we talk about knee health, um, for me, I really like a like a triphasic approach, um, like a uh, eccentric, isometric block of exercises. So you do slow lowering stuff um, for a while, and then you do holds at the bottom position for a while. I think that's really good for tendon health, um, tissue strength, and it really allows athletes to understand positions and become really good at decelerating. Um, so I like that for them as well as, um, and I think this is something that people know but they forget about when it comes to injury prevention. You you have to monitor the workload of your athletes because you could do all the right exercises. You could do all the right, perfect things in your mind about programming. But at the end of the day, if you didn't know they had a really hard practice and you put a really hard lift on them and you're not structuring that throughout the week, then it it really doesn't matter what you do in the weight room. Um, You know, I like to follow a high, low model. So our high stress days, um, if you have a hard practice, then we do a hard lift. And then the next day should be a down practice or a down lift. Um, throughout the week, you just have high stress days and low stress days and you manage those accordingly. So you always have days to recover and you always have days where you, you build up, um, or actually break down. Um, because when we work out, we break down muscles and things like that, but yeah, high low model. Yeah, I think that's put really well. And I think that's a 
good spot to wrap in terms of the sports performance aspect of the talk. But, um, you know, obviously it's a new year. There are tons of people going to the gym now, uh, much of them for the first time ever. Um, and so obviously, you know, you train athletes, but I'm just wondering, do you have any ideas about how you would, you know, structure a workout program for somebody that uh, is working out for the first time? Uh, let's say this is a person that has a pretty busy schedule and, you know, they just want to get in general shape, not necessarily lose weight. Maybe they're air quotes, skinny fat. Um, they could work out two or three times a week. Like what are they doing in your mind? Yeah. Nice. Um, you know, what I'd say to these people, little PSA public service announcement, there's a lot of people after January 1st, that get into the gym and the gym always blows up around this time. And if you're listening to this podcast, I believe in you, you could stick it out. You can do it. You could be the one that sticks. Okay. So what a workout program comes down to for people that are new to fitness or have always had trouble, you know, sticking with it is it has to be sustainable. You don't need the perfect program. You need a program that's sustainable and you could do over time. So you could talk about, you know, you could do a Ronnie Coleman split. You could do back buys, tries. You could do all this stuff, lower body, upper body. It doesn't matter. You have to do what you like to do um, to make it sustainable and make it stick. Um, so like I said, for my college group, I do upper and lower body training throughout the week. Um, but I think full, I think total body training would be a great option for someone that's, you know, kind of getting into fitness is like their, their first thing. And then as they get more advanced, they could do kind of like a back and buys model. Um, so I like total body training. I also like the idea of push pull legs. So one day you do pulling exercises with your upper body. The next day you do pushing exercises with your upper body and then you have a leg day. Um, the good thing about that model is you could do it three times a week or you can do it six times a week because you could double up on it. Um, and take a day off in between. Um, but like I said, it's it's all about sustainable. And, and when we talk about sustainable, it's not just exercising anymore. It's it's habit formation. It's lifestyle. It's understanding the stressors you have in life. Um, things that I've struggled with. You know, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm a strength conditioning coach. It's not always easy, me, easy for me to get in the gym. Um, things that's helped me, especially when I'm waking up early. And I know a lot of people, you know, maybe work out before work or whatever it is. I like to actually set my clothes out um, before I go to sleep. So I'll set my workout clothes on, on my table or whatever it might be. And, you know, I wake up, try to wake up on my first alarm and just get it going, man. It's not, it's not fun. It's like, you, you don't always want to get off of the warm, nice, cozy pillow and go and work out. But, um, you know, once you fall into the routine, you realize like, it's actually, you feel better. It's better for you. Um, I actually have a short thing about, you know, I was actually talking to my buddy last week and, uh, you know, he's got an office job and he's, and he's, he's working in the real world and all this stuff. And he was talking to me about, about his workout routine. He's working out like five, four or five days a week in the morning before work. And like, he, he gets up and he goes to the gym and he does his thing. And he realizes like when he goes to work, he gets at work like eight, eight thirty AM after he works out, he gets, he's boom, he's right into his work for the day. He doesn't waste a minute. He's on it. Days when he doesn't work out in the morning, he kind of strolls in and like, ah, like, uh, I don't really want 30 minutes pass. And like, it's really hard to get his day started. So it, for him, that's like a real world example of like, yeah, it might stink, but you'll realize as you throughout the course of the time with some, some consistency, your life is just more productive and, and, and usually just happier. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I think that what you just said, it's sort of hard for people that aren't in the habit of consistently working out to understand, but yeah, you're expending energy, but you end up having more energy as a result the rest of the day. Um, yeah, it's, it's kind of something that seems at odds with itself uh, mm -hmm. if you just think about it on its face. But um, one aspect that a lot of people encounter when they're first coming into strength conditioning is soreness. So should people be chasing soreness when they're first getting into exercising um, how should we really think about this? Is this something that we should be seeking out or avoiding, managing, taking supplements for it? You don't have to get into all that, but generally just what should we know about soreness? Yeah. Um, what, what I think about is every, and I don't know if this is the right way to start this conversation, but every off season for the first week of the every off season I've ever done, my body feels like I got in a car accident. Like it's just the volume, the volume increases 
drastically because you're in the offseason, you're not playing as much baseball. So when we talk about working out, like you might get sore at certain points. Like for me, um, say you just got in the gym for the first week, January 1st, and you're in the gym. If you're sore for the first week, don't be afraid of it. Um, it's not necessarily a great sign. Soreness, don't use soreness as an indicator of like, oh, I'm working hard. Oh, I'm doing it right. It's not necessarily what it is. But at the same time, don't be afraid of it, right? So your first week of training, yeah, you can be a little sore. Say you do a program for four weeks. First week, you're a little sore, then your body gets used to it. And then you start your new program. And then the first week, you're a little sore, and then your body gets used to it. It's crazy how the human body works. Um, but don't be afraid of soreness, but also don't use it as an indicator of you're doing things right, if that makes sense. Um, but in terms of recovery, and when you have soreness, you have to take a holistic approach to it. So the training is important. Um, the nutrition is huge. Sleep is huge. And I even go with an extra one, like four pillars, hydration. So hydration, uh, sleep, nutrition, and training. Um, you know, those things will, will minimize your soreness and, and really keep the ball rolling uh, in terms of long-term. On the flip side of it, how should people think about soreness in regard to injury? Because I'm sure that's a problem with hmm. athletes, but it's also a problem with with people. I mean, I've had very rare occasions when I'm working out and something doesn't feel right. And I'm truthfully not ever really sure to whether I should keep working out or not in those, in those moments. I, I don't know. I mean, you, you think you can listen to your body and then you, you would know, like if something really hurts, obviously stop. But there's a lot of those gray areas where it's like, eh, I don't know. That doesn't feel right. Am I sore? Is something injured? I'm not really sure. What do you, yeah. how do you like consult athletes about that? And then maybe just tips for the general population. Yeah. It's hard. It's hard answering a question like that without, you know, being, in person with you and like maybe doing a movement assessment. But what I can say is, <clears throat> and this is for everybody, <clears throat> I should have mentioned this when I said soreness or we started talking about, you know, getting in the gym for the first time. Make sure you do a warm up, guys. Just just five to ten minutes. Just give me give me something. Give me something. Like do some kind of warm up. Um it, it's just it just has really good effects. You know, warm core body temperature, get the muscles going, um, circulate some things, circulate the blood. Um, and you'll notice like a lot of injuries just don't happen anymore. If you do warmups, I have, I've had so many clients, like I do some remote stuff, um, throughout the course of the year. And it's like, yeah, my, my, uh, something's my back's bothering me. You know, after three weeks of the program, I was like, well, did you, have you been doing the five to 10 minute warmup that I had on there? Like, no. So it's like, man, just do the warmup, just do the warmup. Um, I'm sorry, James, can you, can you, um, repeat your question one more time? I just had to, I just had to touch on the importance of a warmup. No, yeah, no, I mean, I think you pretty much touched on it. Uh, but no, I was just curious about uh, soreness and injuries. Like when should, when should, how should people think about soreness and injuries? Because I was saying like, you know, sometimes I work out, I feel a twinge, I feel something not right. But um, there's genuinely times where I'm like, all right, I'm not sure. Is Am I just not warmed up enough? Or can I push through that? Will that keep happening? Um, obviously, I don't want to hurt myself. I haven't yet thankfully hurt myself in the gym. But um, how do you think about that for, for athletes and kind of injury risk mitigation when working out? Yes. So that's why I said something about warmups. Yeah. So make sure you warm up first and foremost. But um, yeah, I mean, I think people shouldn't be afraid. You know, you know, if you're really into health and fitness, people shouldn't be afraid to to seek help. You know, if, if something's, if you love going to the gym and you're in there every week and something's always twinging you, but you've been able to work through it, don't be afraid to go see a chiropractor or a physical therapist and, and see what they have on it. I mean, they're the professionals, right? So usually those guys can give you a pretty good idea of what's going on, even if it's a small thing. Um, to me, I always, this is actually an Eric Cressy quote is, listen to it, whisper, listen to it when it whispers before it screams. So if you have a little whisper or something that's always nagging and nagging, go get it checked out, man. Just, you know, one-time session with a PT or a chiro and, and see what they say. Um, to bounce off that even a little further, like say I'm dealing with someone that has, you know, is coming back from an injury or return to play protocol. Something that I think in my head is like one to 10 scale. Like say, uh, you know, they're coming back from whatever, a sprained ankle. And we're working on a little ankle stability program, prehab. Uh, not prehab, but rehab and whatever it is, isometric. And they have like a three out of 10 um, on a pain scale or a soreness scale. If it's like a two, three out of 10 and that ankle's working, they feel it. It's maybe a little bit uncomfortable, but it's not really painful. Then I know I'm usually in a good place and I'm building it back up. But if you're at like over a five, like say if you're working out and you're doing squats and your hamstring, when you get to the bottom is like six or seven, it's like, wow, that does not feel good. That's probably not good. Not a good day to do squats. Um, let's hit some mobility and hit an upper body lift that day or whatever it might be. 
Um, you know, so if you really wanted to break it down, think about a one through 10, like if you're at like one, two, three, and it feels okay and you can work through it. Okay. Work through it. And then make sure you go home, have a good meal and get eight hours of sleep and see how it feels. And then if you're at like a seven or an eight and you're trying to work through some squats or deadlifts, just cut it for the day, go home, have a good meal, get eight hours of sleep and see how it feels tomorrow. Um, that's kind of would be my two cents on not being able to physically look at you, but kind of give you an idea of how you could work through some things. Awesome. Yeah, no, it's super helpful. And uh, if people are kind of going to the gym and doing that program that you suggested, let's say it's a push pull and then legs, um, how should they think about reps? Is there like a best rep scheme that they should be doing starting out? Um, whether it's, you know, heavier weight and low reps or just a ton of reps, like 15 reps, but just a little bit of weight. Because there any considerations that people should be making on that front or is anything kind of, can anything go? Um, like I said, it's down to what is sustainable. So whatever they prefer. I mean, if I had a client and they were like, listen, I love doing three reps. I like doing heavy stuff. Let's go for it. You know, let's do it. Um, you know, whatever you want to do. But if it's someone that doesn't really have any direction is wondering where to go. Um, I like just eight reps, man, eight to 12 reps. Um, <clears throat> kind of keep every exercise there. It's simple. And as you work throughout the course of time, so you do eight to 12 reps on most of your exercises for, you know, a few weeks, maybe a month or two, you drop that down to five to eight reps, six reps, somewhere in that range. And every few months, you just keep lowering reps a little bit. Next thing you know, you'll be doing a squat PR by 50, 100 pounds, because basically how the concept work is you build up capacity and muscle hypertrophy, and then you've worked to overall strength. And then you kind of repeat that cycle. So as a general rule of thumb, maybe you do eight to 12 reps and you work your down, you work your way down to like three reps over a few months. And what you'll start to realize is you built the capacity and then you hit overall strength and you kind of repeat that cycle. And I assume over the long term, you'd have, you've had a lot of gains. Um, and one kind of caveat to that is when you work out, you know, I know everybody is not looking for big strength gains or, or whatever it is, or maybe they want to get toned, but at the end of the day, um, you know, something I love is super simple, just progressive overload is what it's called. Just every week, say you do squats on your leg day, that's your big lift. Um, every week, just have five to 10 pounds on the squat. Five to 10 pounds, you do that over the course of, you know, three, four months, your squat has jumped um, exponentially. Um, so just super simple, progressive overload, just five to 10 pounds every week. Um, you could see a lot of gains. Awesome. Yeah, I think that'll be super helpful for people. You know, all the things that you kind of outlined and we'll include a lot of that in the show notes. Um, as we kind of wrap here, is there anything else that you wanted to kind of chat about or uh, things that you wanted to plug, uh, whether it be Instagram or Twitter? Obviously, you got your sports performance facility that you mentioned, Damage. Anything else that you wanted to kind of cover? Um. Oh man, I just, I just want to, to say thank you to you guys. You know, this is a really good conversation. And I know, you know, me and Drew, like we said, are roommates. And we've been friends for a while now. But, you know, James, I, th I think you're a really knowledgeable guy. I enjoyed, I enjoyed having a conversation with you today. And, you know, it was a pleasure being on, seriously, guys. And um, I guess if, if anybody, um, if, <clears throat> if any listeners want to reach out to me, um, probably the best, best, best place to do it would be Instagram. So you could, you could follow me at Suave Strength. Um, I post a lot of exercise videos, work with my athletes. I do, you know, some of my own training, um, working on getting a website up. So if anybody wants to train with me or do some of my programs, um, that'll be coming here in the near future. Um, but the best way to reach out, you know, I'll get back to you on, on DM or whatever it might be. Suave strength is, is where it's at. And I'm, you know, if that's the case. I look forward to interacting with you guys. Awesome. Well, thank you again, Victor, for, Coming on the show, uh, obviously got a bright future ahead and definitely excited to see a little bit more this summer. So awesome. yeah, without thank you, further Victor. ado, Victor Cruz, everyone.